it won't be easy, but we can do it. We need to wake up and smell the coffee. The independence case is a powerful one. Another future is possible, but we've got to fight for it. Order! Hello and welcome to the Debated Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Will, and in this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Nick Thomas-Simmons, the Shadow Secretary of State for International Trade since 2021, the Labour MP for Tofan since 2015, and the author of a new book, Harold Wilson, The Winner. Welcome to the podcast, Nick. Great to join you, Will, and very much looking forward to talking about Harold's life. I think we'll um, get started then, because it's something that has um, fascinated me for a, a long time. And the first question I'd like to ask is, what was it that made you decide to write this particular book about Harold Wilson? What prompted you to, to write it at this moment? Well, I'm a political biographer who's written previous biographies of Clem Attlee and Aniram Bevan. And having studied the 1945 to 51 Labour government in such depth, having written about both its prime minister and indeed one of its most senior and prominent members, it seemed natural to want to move on to the next uh, Labour government. And of course, Harold Wilson is so strongly linked to an Iron Bevan, resigned with him, of course, in 1951 from Clem Attlee's Labour government. But it also seems that as we are in the midst of yet another long Labour period in opposition, that his ability both to bring Labour out of the electoral wilderness in 1964 and indeed to maintain Labour in power, it seemed to me there were some pretty uh, relevant uh, lessons to be had for a practising uh, Labour politician from Harold, but also more broadly because I think there were so many of his achievements that shape our modern day politics that he doesn't get credit for. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I mean, you mentioned um, Nye Bevan there and, and Wilson was sometimes referred to as uh, Nye's uh, little doc. I mean, how important do you think that that relationship was to Wilson's development as a politician? It was a really important relationship. And I mean, Hugh Dalton's comment about <clears throat> him being Nye's little dog was made <clears throat> around the time of the just after the resignation in 1951. Now, Harold first came into contact with Nye when Clem Attlee gave Harold his first ministerial job as parliamentary secretary at the Ministry of Works in 1945. And at that time, Aaron Bevan was at his political peak, really. He was the Minister of Health and Housing. And Harold's role vis-a-vis -vis Nye was to source the materials essentially for, for Bevan's housing programme. And he saw this, this great dominant figure in the government. And Aaron Bevan had great command over his department because he was so decisive and so clear about what he wanted to do and civil servants liked working for him. And Harold was, was very inspired, not just by, by Nye's oratory, which was of course terrific, but also they shared a belief in economic planning. And Aaron Bevan once made that made that remark, that, that very sarcastic remark about how on earth was it that you had this, this island uh, that and underneath which was, was coal and it was surrounded by fish. How on earth could this government produce this, this shortage of coal and fish at the same time? And they both shared as well that, that abhorrence of high unemployment. So there's a lot in common between them. And 
Nay, therefore, they shaped Harold in the course of that government. But also, what is so significant in Harold's career is that set of events that leads to the resignation of Anaren Bevan, Harold Wilson, and John Freeman in the early part of 1951. And although ostensibly the resignation is about the introduction of charging for teeth and spectacles in the NHS. It was deeper than that because it was also about the fact that Clem Attlee had crossed the Atlantic to see Truman after the outbreak of the Korean War and had obtained a concession from Truman that Truman would not use a nuclear weapon unless he first consulted uh, either Clem or whoever the prime minister was. But the, the cost of that was this enormous increase in defence spending. And whilst Nye had been in favour of the Marshall Plan, uh, of Marshall Aid, and that plan that had essentially saved swathes of Western Europe from destitution, he felt that there was this turn to a more militarism, more militaristic style in American foreign policy, a more confrontational style. And of course, one of the, one of the consequences of this huge increase in spending was the then Chancellor Hugh Gateskill's decision to introduce these charges in the NHS. And Harold Wilson was left with the choice. Did he stay in the government with Gateskill or did he leave the government with Bevan? He left with Bevan. And it made a huge difference because it gave him a link to the left of the Labour Parliamentary Party. And although it was to become frayed in years to come, it was never entirely severed. Mm, absolutely. Uh, one thing that I'd like to um, turn to now is back to the start of the book because of course the book starts uh, by looking at Wilson's early life and his his early life and, and background um, as, as you made very clear is deeply political and it's one that is rooted in the north of England in the lower middle class non-conformist communities in the north of England and as, as, as you illustrate in the book there is a shift at the turn of the 19th, uh, the turn of the 20th century, rather, from um, support for the Liberal Party that many of these families had to supporting the Labour Party. How much do you think that the Wilson family's shift from supporting the Liberals to supporting Labour reflects a, a broader change during that period in the aspirations and, and, and beliefs of many families like the Wilsons who felt that the Liberal Party and that the um, uh, Liberal governments hadn't quite succeeded in achieving all that they wanted of them. Yeah, I, I think it really does exemplify the great change that happened on the left of British politics in those early decades of the 20th century. And remember that uh, there is there is still quite a nice link to the new liberals in the sense that Sir Henry Campbell Bannerman, who was something of a hero of, of Herbert Wilson and was liberal prime minister from 1905 to 1908, but had that great quality of bringing unity to the then fractured liberals, which was something that, that did have an influence on Harold. But that shift from liberal to Labour really was significant. There was the, the letdown, of course, as well after the end of World War I, uh, where the promise of the Lloyd George, though it wasn't by then a Liberal government, there was a Liberal Prime Minister in David Lloyd George, but it was a, uh, a government uh, that was dominated by the Conservatives. But nonetheless, 
there was a great sense of letdown after World War One. But also with Harold, the, the nature of his background is, is so significant, I think, because there's the link to the nonconformist church, the Congregationalist background that is so significant to him because it isn't just about his parents' background. Remember, uh, his wife, Mary, was a Congregationalist as well. Uh, they were to be married in Mansfield College, Oxford, which again has roots, Congregationalist roots. It really was a central part of him. But he wasn't just someone who saw morals for morals' sake. He allied it to this great sense of public service, as did his parents, uh, in the scouting movement, for example, which, which was always to mean uh, a great deal to him. But it's also, as I've indicated with my speaking about his link to an Aaron Bevan, his real abhorrence of unemployment comes from conversations with his father, Herbert. When his father was essentially an industrial chemist, worked in the, the dye stuffs industry, worked in the munitions industry in World War I, but was somebody who had to move around for work. They moved from uh, just southwest of Huddersfield in the Colne Valley, where, where he was born, down to the Wirral, later down to, to Cornwall, actually, where his father lived. But when there was the periods of, the periods of unemployment, he always re remembered a conversation with his father when he asked him for money, and his father just looked deeply ashamed and said, I'm sorry, there isn't any. So I think that background, that transition liberal to Labour, and indeed, how his parents were, I think, had a huge impact on him. Mm -hmm, absolutely. And you, and you mentioned the, the Wirral there. And of course, um, during his, his sixth form education, he was at Wirral Grammar School. And he was the only... Um, only yeah, the only sixth form. He was the only boy in um, the sixth form. How do you think that that impacted uh, Wilson's sense of himself, that he was... Uh, in, in, in a way, apart from everybody else, that he was the only sixth form. And, and to a degree, he um, got a certain amount of, of special treatment in a way, didn't he? It, it, it did. And, it, and it's, of course, his, his father, it's not purely by accident, because his father, Herbert Wilson, when he moved down to, to work uh, on the Wirral, uh, had asked other people, where, you know, where should he go to school and these, these sorts of things. So it isn't purely an accident but of course what is a bit of an accident is he ends up as the only sixth former and I think it's really significant because it's significant obviously in terms of the attention that he's able to have from from teachers but it was also significant because there were some issues when he uh, applies and, and gets into Oxford there were some issues around his scholarship and there's some stories in the book about how you know an individual teacher uh, is able to intervene with the local authority. So th th there's, a, there's a personal attention that he is able to get in those years, which, which obviously was, was to, his, uh, to his advantage going forward. Mm -hmm. And of course, um, during his, his time at Oxford, he had a stellar career, didn't he? He, he became a Don at an incredibly um, young age and his, his, um, his PPE degree was, was one of the highest that had ever been seen at Oxford. Do you think at this point Wilson saw himself going down the route of becoming an, an academic? Or do you think that there were, even at this stage, ambitions for um, political office? I, I, I know in the book he um, mentioned fairly early on that he wanted to be prime minister. But do you think there was any chance that whilst he was at Oxford, he thought he might choose the, the route of an academic permanently rather than just 
being there uh, temporarily. I think had he not succeeded in finding a parliamentary seat, he may, he would have been, in my view, uh, an academic, and Mary would have been particularly happy to have done that. It's where she was at her happiest. The uh, the only debate when Harold was very young was whether he wanted to be prime minister or chancellor. And uh, the, when he was, he was, of course, growing up in the Calm Valley. It, it is significant because the local MP was, of course, Philip Snowden, who was the first Labour chancellor of the Exchequer. So perhaps it's no surprise that that, that was a, a particular uh, possible ambition for him. I mean, when he, he first met Mary, he told her that he was going to be, be an MP and become prime minister. But fortunately for him, she didn't believe a word of it, because had she done so, things might have been very different. But he always had that, that hankering uh, after politics, and the ambition never dims in him. But that isn't to say that he didn't thoroughly enjoy being uh, both an academic and indeed a wartime civil servant, because he loved doing both those things. And Again, the the attention to detail that's required, the forensic memory that he had, but also the ability to apply it practically to the real world. They were really important lessons he picked up from those phases of his life. Mm -hmm. And of course, as a um, wartime civil servant, he worked with... Um, William Beveridge and Beveridge, of course, had a, a massive um, influence. The Beveridge Report had a massive influence on on post-war politics. But but Wilson and Beveridge had a bit of a <laughs> a fractious <laughs> relationship at times. In in what way do you think that that fractious relationship contributed to Wilson's future? And, and what do you think was at the core of the the dispute between Beveridge and Wilson? Well, this is a fascinating relationship, isn't it? Because Beveridge and his his report, which which, by the way, he was only commissioned to do because Ernest Bevin was extremely irritated by him and thought sending him off was a was a good idea. But he produced this this remarkable report, which had huge influence on the Attlee government's foundation of the modern day welfare state. And I would argue Beveridge's report is still influential in our politics all these decades uh, later. What's interesting is that, that Beveridge, of course, is the person through whom Wilson initially becomes uh, a lecturer at Oxford. And, and Beveridge had moved uh, across to, to Oxford and had asked around and been recommended Wilson. And that's where their, their relationship began. When you think about it, Harold working on pro a research project, essentially it was about the relationship between unemployment and its levels and the trade cycle, but there were other things too. In a sense, you'd think they were a match made in heaven because both uh, people who had great attention to detail, both very deep thinkers, uh, Beveridge also, you know, one of the greatest administrators we've had, I would argue, Beveridge, who again was not somebody who wanted to sit in some distant classroom somewhere producing statistic after statistic. They both wanted to apply their knowledge to, to the real world. So there was a lot in essence in common between them. The problem is that Beveridge was an extraordinarily difficult taskmaster. I think well, Wilson called him a devil to work with. And there's even at one point uh, where Harold marries Mary in 1940 and Beveridge even decides to interrupt the honeymoon to, to try and demand that, that Harold is uh, uh, working on things. So he was a really hard taskmaster. He liked getting up very early in the mornings, working in his own way. But whatever the slight, you know, fracture and difficulty in how Wilson found him to work with, he never did lose his admiration 
for William Beveridge. And unquestionably, both becoming an Oxford lecturer, but also subsequently getting into the wartime civil service, it's very much the connection to Beveridge that, that makes those things possible for Harold. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And of course, um, following uh, wartime service in um, the civil service, Wilson would go on to become an MP. And as we referenced at the, the, the beginning of the podcast, obviously became a minister in the Attlee government. How important do you think that that experience as being a minister in Attlee's government had on Wilson and influenced his later approach to being prime minister? Because in comparison, um, subsequent um, Labour prime ministers, as most recent two Labour prime ministers, didn't have that experience of government in the same way that that Wilson and um, and later Jim Callaghan had. So, so how important do you, do you think it was for forming his approach to being prime minister? I think it was hugely important, and I think he was very influenced by observing uh, Clem Attlee's style of leadership. Remember, Clem Attlee was the classic chairperson leader, with some exceptions, like for example, the decision for. Britain to develop its own nuclear weapon, or indeed independence for India, or Attlee very much did personally intervene and shape policy. He generally saw the role of the Prime Minister as to find consensus, not to impose it, and was, was a leader of a very particular style who was able to get so much done, he had this huge team uh, around him of, of giants that, that he marshaled in a quite remarkable way. And uh, Harold was very much influenced by by seeing that, seeing how Attlee dealt with different situations. But I think Harold was also hugely influenced by the jobs that uh, he had under Attlee. So remember, he was Parliamentary Secretary of the Ministry of Works, which was a, a very good starting point uh, for him. Then briefly Secretary for Overseas Trade, where he was off negotiating, particularly in Moscow. It's where he picked up, by the way, the habit of smoking a pipe because it gave him time in the negotiations, I think. And he, there's no question he loved being the president of the Board of Trade. And uh, one of the people I interviewed for the book, uh, Theresa May, of course, later Conservative Prime Minister, who was actually a staffer on a commission that Harold chaired looking into how financial institutions worked after he'd left as Prime Minister. And even then, Theresa May recounts him still quoting trade statistics, you know, the, the, the trade cycle, the balance of payments. He was passionate. And also, by the way, as president of the Board of Trade, had that huge influence on the film industry as well, and the UK film industry, which he did so much to support alongside, of course, the famous bonfire of the wartime controls of trying to take away all the different... And when we think of wartime controls, by the way, we often think of rationing, and that's true, but it was a lot more than that. It was about controls of use of raw materials in production processes that really did reach down into so many areas of our national economy. And of course, he was the person who started to dismantle all that as well. So I think that experience, and also, by the way, just make this one final point, the experience of the devaluation of 1949 is very significant as well, because when he is reluctant to devalue in the 1960s. It's because he knew that devaluation in itself is not a panacea. You, you end up having to accompany it with some quite stringent measures afterwards. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And what I think is, is, is interesting, and, and you, you touch upon this in the book, is the way in which that devaluation, as you say, really did um, 
haunt Wilson and obviously had an effect when he had to oversee um, devaluation as prime minister. Um, when Attlee and Wilson and Labour uh, did leave government, when they entered opposition, how likely do you think people thought it would be that Wilson would become leader of the Labour Party at some point? In 1951, I would say it was still seen as unlikely. He was still someone who was seen. I mean, I think Herbert Morrison said that he surprised us all when he resigned because what he'd been is this very technocratic but very able president of the Board of Trade. But if you watch him on the old British Pathé footage in the late 1940s, he's very formal, very stiff. You wouldn't believe that this figure would become the Harold Wilson with the popular touch of the 1960s. The other point as well is that if you looked at the Labour Party's internal political landscape in 1951, the Parliamentary Party, remember, still elects the leader and the Parliamentary Party is still skewed essentially to the right, stroke right of centre, and I mean right within the Labour Party. Mm -hmm. um, and so what you've got is you've got on the one side, you've got Herbert Morrison, still very ambitious, wants to be the leader, but has a problem in that he is of Attlee's generation. So the longer Attlee stays in post, the less likely it is that the party will want someone of the same generation. They'll want to skip a generation. And it's quite clear that the other candidate of the right of the party is Hugh Gateskill. On the left, you've got an Iron Bevan. Now, when it comes to the 1955 leadership contest, it is indeed those three who are in the contest. And it is Hugh Gateskill who by then... The, 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 the issue in the parliamentary party is they want to settle the leadership for a generation. They, they don't want to elect someone like Morris, Morrison, who uh, could certainly have been the leader and was a very, very capable individual in other circumstances may well have been. But by 1955, it was seen that they wanted to just settle the leadership for years to come. And that's why they decisively choose, um, choose Gateskill. And of course, um, the relationship between Gateskill and Wilson that had been formed during the, the 1945 government was a, 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 a fascinating one. What, what do you think the um, truth is, is to the degree of animosity between the two? Do you think it was just a, a case of friendly rivalry or, or do you think that there was something more between the pair of them? And they've got a fascinating relationship because it goes through different phases. They they were both the bright young things of the 1945 government. They're both rising through the ranks. Hugh obviously rises to be chancellor eventually, but in that, that final uh, year of the Attlee government. You first see them as quite obvious rivals in the devaluation crisis of 1949, where... Uh, Attlee essentially delegates it to Wilson, Douglas J, Hugh Gateskill. And it's quite clear if you read the diary accounts of this, that the other two are certainly trying to portray this as, as Gateskill's great achievement, not, not Wilson's. You know, the fact that, uh, not that I'm suggesting this sort of devaluation as achievement, but the handling of it was seen as Gateskill's achievement. And Gateskill came out of that with a lot of credit. Uh, Clem Attlee used to call the three of them the young economists. Mm -hmm. And it was Gateskill who came out on top and becomes chancellor. There is then a phase in the 50s where Harold is in the Bevanite group on the back benches. Hugh Gateskill is the, 
uh, the, the one of the leading figures within who wants to discipline them, who wants to come down hard on them and all the rest of it. But they come to a rapprochement in the end. They, they come back together in the end. Harold takes Knight Bevan's place in the shadow cabinet. Harold does eventually back Hugh Gateskill to be leader and becomes Gateskill's shadow chancellor. And again, their relationship goes through a, a pretty productive phase in the late 1950s. Harold, uh, if we go back to Harold's childhood, he had Labour won in 1959. The other ambition would have been realised. He would have been the chancellor. But they then go through another difficult phase in the early 1960s because Harold felt that he was being blamed unfairly by Hugh Gateskill for the 1959 defeat. There was He disagreed with Hugh Gateskill on rewriting of Clause 4 of the party constitution. And he also uh, ends up, of course, standing against him for the leadership. And there was a difficult phase where Hugh Gateskill was threatening to demote him and all the rest of it. In the end, he became the shadow foreign secretary. And as it happened, uh, flourished perfectly well as the shadow foreign secretary. But they had they had a relationship where, where Harold often thought Hugh didn't understand the, the, the party rank and file. They'd been on different sides of some of the these great uh, schisms in the Labour Party in the 19. 19- 50. So they they weren't they weren't ever close friends in the sense that Gateskill was with, say, someone like Roy Jenkins or Tony Crossland or, you know, the, the, the Gateskill or the Hampstead set, as they were called. He was never part of that Hampstead set. But but, you know, there was that they they certainly had this. There was a respect between the two of them as, as big politicians, no doubt about that. Mm-hmm. And of course, uh, eventually in 1963, uh, Wilson would succeed Gateskill as as leader, and he was only briefly, uh, initially, leader of the opposition before becoming prime minister. And it's at that time that he's leader of the opposition that he sets out the um, image of himself that is so associated with him—the white heat of mm. technology. How important do you think it was for that 1964 election to be that? stark contrast between a Conservative Party that seemed more at home with um, the grouse moors and and, and shooting and and, and things like that, and a Labour Party that was talking about modernisation and improving British industry and making British industry uh, more attractive to people around the world. I think it was hugely important. And I think, firstly, the Conservatives had been in power a long time. But also the very nature of the succession from Macmillan to Douglas Hume, where Macmillan is in hospital. And the recommendation of the successor, he wants Hume to succeed him. The problem is that Hume was a hereditary peer and was in the House of Lords. And you have this bizarre period, which is really unthinkable now. Where the only way, where Hume becomes prime minister, but isn't actually a member of either house because he he disclaims the peerage. He eventually comes into the Commons at the Perth and Kinross by-election in the November of 1963. But there's this brief period where he's neither a member of the Lords nor a member of the Commons. And Harold said that this was the prime minister being chosen by an aristocratic cabal, and it had something to it. And he contrasted that with this image of modernity. 
of capturing the zeitgeist of the age, the, the white heat of the technological revolution, that famous speech that he gave on the 1st of October 1963 in Scarborough, which, which came in many ways, I think, to define his political times, and he defined them as well. He was the grammar school boy, the first of the post-war prime ministers not to have been privately educated. He was there by dint of his own effort. So moving out of that very formal, stratified society of the 1950s, in many ways, he symbolised it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And of, of, of course, the association with uh, the white heat of technology and with the economy has meant that a lot of people see Wilson as, as something of a uh, solely an economist and someone who was solely concerned with the economy. D do you think that this is sometimes overlooked his part in the sweeping social policies that were enacted during his first premiership and in, in a way almost trying to separate him from the some of the achievements of the gov of, of that government because it, it seems that certainly some historians and, and some politicians as well seem to place Wilson uh, more connected fundamentally with the economy of that first government and devaluation and those kinds of things and remove him from his association and, and, and with his part in the, the sweeping social progress that was made during that first government. I think, I think that's right. And I think it, this has been a real issue. I mean, in a sense, because he was the young economist of the, one of the young economists of the Atlee government, because he'd been president of the Board of Trade, because he'd been shadow chancellor for six years, he did have that, that great association with, uh, with economics, with understanding mm -hmm. of economics. So in one sense, the, you, you could see why that might happen. But one of the things I wanted to correct with this book was just to look more broadly at what he was able to achieve. And sticking to that first period in government from 1964 to 70, the changes are sweeping. The abolition of capital punishment, abolition of corporal punishment, the uh, Sexual Offences Act, which meant for the first time homosexuality was decriminalized, which meant, and, and this, this is a huge thing because people could then love who they wanted to without fear of the knock on the door from the police or yeah. what was sometimes all too common in that period, which was blackmail because of your, your private life. Uh, there was, of course, the Abortion Act, which meant that that spectre of backstreet abortions, uh, awful spectre, was, was consigned to the history books. The abolition of theatre censorship, divorce law reform, which meant that people weren't trapped anymore in, in loveless marriages. Uh, Barbara Castle's Equal Pay Act of 1970, landmark piece of legislation in equality in the workplace. And then, of course, you have the Open University, which has been an enduring uh, piece of change that essentially put the concept of lifelong learning into our national politics. And on the social reforms, it's often said, well, he was, he was socially quite conservative, but that is true, but he saw these changes as socially necessary. And we must always remember this. He appointed Roy Jenkins as Home Secretary in December 1965, knowing that was Roy's agenda. Roy had written a book about this in the late 1950s. But secondly, in the period from 1964 to probably late 67, the dominant three figures in the government were Jim Callaghan, Harold and George Brown. And both George Brown and Jim Callaghan wondered why government time was being used on things that were not properly the business of government. So at any point, Harold could have put a stop 
to any of these things and chose not to because he saw them as necessary. And you think all those things, none of them have been overturned by subsequent governments. Yes, absolutely. And of course, particularly with um, capital punishment, this was a, a, a quite a, a difficult time um, mm. locally um, for, for Labour, given that it came in just um, at, at, at the same time as, as the trial of the of the Moore's murderers. Do, mm. do you think that it was um, something, you know, that we, we, we don't quite consider how um, brave some of these changes are because we know that they were uh, right changes, um, correct changes to, to, to make because, I mean, there was in Lancashire great public outcry mm. because of that, because the it, it was just within a whisker that the, um, the Moore's murderers didn't end up um, receiving the death penalty. Yes, and I think we, we underestimate now how controversial these things were. So remember that the that Sidney Silverman had campaigned for, for many years on the death penalty. But the Attlee government, which has a tremendous record socially on so many things, but the Attlee government hadn't abolished uh, capital punishment. The Attlee government hadn't either abolished corporal punishment in prison. So there was still birching in prisons going on until... It was stopped by uh, that Criminal Justice Act uh, of 67. So, and, and these were things that had been in our politics at that time for decades. So if you had, in the mid-1960s, spoken to people about both birching and indeed capital punishment, that's all they would have known. That's what they would have grown up with. And so making those changes was controversial, and it was made even more controversial, well, as you say, because... Uh, you had this <clears throat> trial, of course, in the in the mid 1960s of Ian Brady and Myra Hindley, the evil Moore's murderers. That the nature of the crimes and, of course, the of those killings really did capture the national consciousness and put huge pressure on the government. And it was also the case then that the the abolition of capital punishment, capital punishment, still did enjoy a lot of public uh, support. So they were not, as it were, picking up issues that society had reached a consensus with regard to change. They were leading uh, the change. And Harold's, Harold's book on the 1964-70 government is, is, shows a very deep pride in that abolition of capital uh, punishment. And it, and it remained one of his uh, achievements he was most proud of. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, moving to the, the 1970 election, looking at, at a lot of the initial polling, which I'm mentioning in, in the book, it seems clear at the, at the start of the campaign that um, Wilson may be able to, to, to pull it off and, and to win re-election in 1970. But of course, he eventually um, loses the election to, to Ted Heath and to the Conservatives. What do you think he felt having lost uh, that election when really, as, as, as you say, even up to, to 1970, you were seeing major legislation being passed with, with um, the Equal uh, Pay Act and to suddenly find himself in, in opposition? I mean, how, how do, you, do you think it, it made him feel? It was very, he found it very difficult. They, they were all, they were shocked by it. And he he found the transition extremely difficult as well from as I, I think the world, particularly the media world, 
had changed dramatically during the 1960s. Now, Harold was one of the ones who mastered the art of television. His young TV producer, of course, advisor in the early 60s was Tony Benn, of course, who, who helped him significantly. But being leader of the opposition in 1970 was very different from being leader of the opposition only six years before. And suddenly he finds himself as leader of the opposition. All the trappings of government have gone. And he's in a bit of a panic, really, as to how do you actually run an office of leader of the opposition? And he ends up having to try to fund it. This is the reason we end up with what is now called short money, because when he comes back to power, the leader of the Commons, Ted Short, made public money available to the opposition in Parliament to do scrutiny work. It's still with us. We still have it today. And that came about because of Harold's shock in 1970 that to go from having all the advantages of government to having so few tools to be leader of the opposition made a big difference. And he was widely expected to win. It was just that that final week, that Monday with the adverse balance of payments uh, figures that, that clearly had some had an impact. But it, it, it was a shock to them all. And what Harold decided to do was not to be particularly prominent in the later part of 1970. He spent the time writing his memoir of the first government, told his press secretary, Joe Haynes, that you've got to let the new government get on with it. The public are not going to listen and want to listen to me. Let the new prime minister have their early period and their honeymoon. And then I will uh, come back to the pitch in the early part of 1971, which he did. Mm -hmm. And of course, during... Uh, that period from from 70 to 74 when he was in opposition britain suffered a a, a great deal of um hardship three day week uh, striking and of course there was a great deal of controversy over britain's mm. membership of the eec and the referendum on 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 membership of the eec was something that was part of the 1974 um, manifesto and, and many people have perhaps retroactively um, cited it as, as one of the reasons that Wilson and Labour were able to return to government. How important do you think that decision to have a referendum was? And in terms of the impact in the Labour Party, obviously it caused a, a great deal of, of disagreement. Do you think that um, he was perhaps aware of the amount of disagreement it would have and, and the impact it would have going forward. Yeah, he, he was acutely conscious of it and uh, his his comments privately to people like Barbara Castle as to how difficult this was going to be, how his rep he, he knew his reputation was going to get trashed by doing what he was going to do. But he'd apply, he remember he'd, uh, first of all, the early 60s, the first application, Macmillan's first application where Heath was the lead negotiator to join the uh, EC. He was uh, the shadow foreign secretary at the time, but his speech in 1962 is really interesting because it's it's a, a sceptical speech, but accepts that there could be a case, there could be advantages in joining. He then applies to join in 67 on both occasions, Britain vetoed by de Gaulle. But by the time de Gaulle has gone, Heath then is able to, to make the successful application. The problem Wilson has is that by the early 70s, the left of the Labour Party then was very anti-European, the likes of Michael Foote, for example. I mean, Tony Benn wasn't as anti-European in the early 70s, but he does become so. And 
their argument is around things like democracy, that the people's power is in the vote. You can't dilute it by having some sort of supranational uh, organization, but also around the idea that the EU was, sorry, the EC as it was then, was becoming wealthier at the expense of, of developing nations and so on. And on the other side, you had real philosophical pro-Europeans who saw this internationalism as in Labour's DNA, which they were led principally by Roy Jenkins. So you've got, and indeed, 69 Labour MPs, including Jenkins, do break the whip to uh, vote in favour of, of joining. Now, what does Harold do? Well, Harold decides on what is a messy compromise, which is he'll oppose going in, but on the Tory terms. Now, he used to send Joe Haynes to the NEC, Labour's National Executive Committee, to make sure they never came out with a position that was against entry full stop. He did everything he could to stop that. And the idea behind it was to hold the party together, but it was also because he ultimately took the view that the UK was better off in. And he was trying strategically to, to see through this. And that's why I actually think his stewardship of the 1975 referendum is vastly underrated. Every household in the country had a leaflet with his face on it and his, rene and his renegotiation is more than cosmetic. If you look mm -hmm. at what happened with the budget, you look at the common agricultural policy, look at the stuff he did to help New Zealand outside. The, these are changes and his changes stay central to the referendum. If you remember 2016, Cameron's renegotiation virtually disappeared out of the national debate, whereas it did not in 1975. And the day after he won in 1975, uh, he, uh, you know, I had this account from uh, from Robin Butler and others who were his civil servants, and he was sat there in the morning. He said, "You see, they say I've got no sense of strategy." But look, and just just looking at that that final um, period as well. I mean, you 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 mentioned that uh, his stewardship of the the seventy five referendum is perhaps overlooked, but th those last couple of years are are, are often. Um, overlooked in terms yeah. of when we look back at Wilson. I mean, why do you think that was and, and what sort of achievements from that period, that, that last period in, in government, do you think are worth highlighting so people are, are better aware of them? So I, I think that what happens is that after the, the winter of discontent of 1978-79 and the wave of strikes, and Margaret Thatcher, by the mid 80s, taking this very confrontational approach to the trade unions, we allowed the 60s and 70s to be to be lumped together as some sort of period that uh, had led inevitably to to Margaret Thatcher, which I would contest, by the way. But I also think what we fail to realise, and I, and I say this in particular, having watched another parliament between 2017 and 2019, where the government had, you know, a little majority with the DUP at the start of it, but lost its majority and found itself completely consumed by the issue of Europe and couldn't really do anything on the domestic front of any large note. So I've seen what happens in parliaments like that. And Wilson's record in that second government is actually quite something. So the social contract, which was the, the idea that trade unions would accept wage restraint in return for wider social reform. That was central to his argument for getting re-elected. And then you get a series of things. You get the Health and Safety at Work Act, which really is the foundation 
of modern day health and safety at work. And uh, I would argue that there are lives saved at work in the decades since as a consequence of that act and what it required employers to do. You've also then got the Employment uh, Protection Act. So things like statutory maternity uh, leave being introduced for uh, the first time. Uh, discrimination uh, in the workplace uh, being outlawed. Uh, ACAS, which is the conciliation service that still exists today. Uh, the health and safety executive and, and the apparatus around that and overseeing safety again comes from this government. There's another Race Relations Act, although it reaches the statute book after Wilson has left office in 76, it's nonetheless during his government building on the other two Race Relations Acts of the 1960s. So in terms of safety for working people, rights at work, outlawing discrimination, these are landmark changes that in my view are all the greater because they were achieved with either a wafer thin or no parliamentary majority at all. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And of course, um, when Wilson did finally leave government, left as prime minister in 1976, there was a, a great deal of, of, of shock behind it and also a, a certain degree of controversy as well. What do you think motivated his decision to resign? Because there's been a lot of speculation from a lot of people about what exactly um, was behind it. Well, had he, had he won in 1970, he'd promised his family he would do two years and then he would leave in 1972. Um, what he does in 1974 is he does the two years, uh, he keeps the promise to his family. And I do think that is the primary motivating factor. I think the, the, there is also the issue that he, he was tired. I mean, anyone who'd been through what he'd been over the 13 years before would be, frankly. Yeah. Um, but also he was, his memory was fading. And there's quite a, a poignant story in the, in the book where one of the whips from that era told me about it, which is he always used to have a reception for the government whips at the end of each parliamentary term, as you'd expect a leader to do. And one of his great memory tricks was to go around the Palace of Westminster and he could point to each painting and he could tell you the year of the painting and also the painter. And what happened is he was going on one of these tours and he just couldn't remember the painter or he couldn't remember the year. You know, he needed a brandy before PMQs. He, he, he really was exhausted, but the primary motivating factor was the promise to his family and he did there's, there's a lovely story actually where uh he he there's a tiny period where jim callahan has won the leadership but harold is still the prime minister and jim is waiting to go to the palace and uh what happens is tony ben turns up at 10 downing street and records it in his diary marcia williams of course harold's great uh uh, great, you know, right-hand woman was, was there as well. So there was Marcia Williams, Jim Callahan, and Tony Benn. And Tony Benn said he was teasing Jim, saying, well, you've won the leadership election, but what would you do if, if Harold just says, I'm not going? Like, how would you literally force him out if he wants to stay? And Jim Callahan said, stay. Mary would never allow that. And, 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 of, and of course, that um, visit to the, the, the palace is, is necessary of, of, of any um, prime minister. And you, and you, took, uh, you touch upon... Um, the relationship between uh, Wilson and, and, and the Queen um, in the book. And, it, and it's one that, that people generally seem to have been a, uh, perceived to have been a, a, a positive 
um, Ward. How important do you think it was to him that he had that uh, positive relationship with, with the late Queen, that he was able to have uh, not, not a, a necessarily uh, more fractious one as, as, as some other prime ministers are, are thought to have had? I think it was really important to him, and he, and he saw it in a meritocratic sense that this was where he got to. You know, he could go for this weekly audience with, with the late Majesty of the Queen. And there's a lot of evidence about the closeness of their relationship. There's the fact that he liked more than one audience a week. Mm. So he would often go back later in the week for a second audience. And he always involved her in decisions. So if he was going to make a decision the following week, he'd have, he'd have talked about it the previous week. So very inclusive. And also the fact that, remember, the uh, investiture of the Prince of Wales in 1969, which again was very controversial at the time, but he stuck to the course, was very clear that this, this would happen. He was not going to be intimidated out of doing it. And then there's the farewell dinner. She only attended two for her prime ministers, Winston Churchill and, and Harold Wilson, which I think is a, is a symbol of what Her Late Majesty the Queen thought of Harold. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, Wilson's place in history has often been overshadowed by that of Attlee, who came before him, and, and, and Blair, who came after him. Do you think that now, nearly 60 years since he first became Prime Minister, that we're seeing a revival in his reputation and a reassessment of his place as one of Britain's great Prime Ministers? I, I really hope so. And it's one of my major motivations for, for writing the book at this time, because time does give you perspective. And you can see, we've already talked about the European issue, we can see how subsequent Prime Ministers dealt with similar dilemmas, and in a lot of cases without the success that Harold had. Mm-hmm. And I think if you look at, there have been 56 British Prime Ministers now, I think Harold has a good case of being in the top quarter. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also think that in terms of the pantheon of Labour leaders, I think Clem Attlee stands at the top, but behind him, you've got Harold Wilson and Tony Blair. And as I speak to you, Will, sadly, since Clem Attlee lost power in 1951, they are the only two so far <laughs> who won general elections for Labour. I hope the so far will be able to uh, revisit in time. <laughs> Hopefully so. Um, thank you very much for coming on uh, the podcast, Pleasure. Nick. If people want to buy a copy of the book, where should they go to to get a copy? So it's available, as they say, from all good uh, bookshops and indeed online. It's uh, Harold Wilson, the winner, published by Weidenfeld and Nicholson, available at £25. It was published on the 1st of September. Excellent. Thank you once again for coming on the podcast. Pleasure. Thank you, Will. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you've enjoyed it, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbeam and Amazon Music. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Debated Podcast, like us on Facebook, Debated Podcast, and if you'd like to get in touch with us, whether about appearing on an episode of the podcast or commenting on an episode that you've listened to, you can do so at thedebatedpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. I hope you listen to the next one.